This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome back. Um, you all know what day it is. If it's the first Monday in November, and tomorrow must be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and you know what that is. Uh, it's the day that we've all been pointing towards this entire semester and for the la- frankly, for the last four years. So tomorrow is the end of something and the beginning of something else uh, because tomorrow is election day. Um, of course, people have been voting for uh, months uh, up to this point, but today, uh, tomorrow the election ends, uh, the counting will begin uh, and we will all uh, inhabit a new world. So uh, no matter what happens, uh, so what, uh, what what's, what's going to happen today is um, we're going to sort of prepare for, uh, you know, tell you sort of what to expect, um, what's being planned, uh, how we see the state of the race. So I'm going to open and I'm going to look at a lot of maps and talk about polling and try and figure out who may or may not win and what we can expect for tomorrow. Um, Saru is going to talk about uh, mobilizations and then we're going to have an opportunity to listen from two of your GSIs. Uh, so Karen Viegas and Ana Lacona are going to talk about uh, naturalization, about their work amongst immigrant voters, um, at, particularly in the Southwest in Arizona. Uh, and so it's a good opportunity to hear about uh, the new research actually being done by your GSIs in uh, these really important both battleground states and uh, social political issues. So one quick but very important announcement uh, is that, uh, and I need you all to be looking very specifically and carefully for new information um, that we'll, we will send out to all of the students in particular. But what's going on is that next week, or not, excuse me, not, not next week, November 4th, the day after the election, we're actually going to be in a different space. We're going to use a Zoom uh, webinar space and we'll be live streaming on YouTube so that this is just going to go out live. Uh, Today, like those of you who are in the Zoom room, you're the only ones who get to do this live. There's 150 of you, so welcome. Uh, Everybody else watches it afterwards, but on the day after the election, we're going out live. I just put into the chat the links that you need. So we're asking all of you to log into the Zoom webinar uh, using that site, which will still allow you to ask questions both in the chat and by raising your hand and to participate in the discussion. But it will also be going out live uh, on YouTube. So, you know, help us, uh, you know, spread the word, uh, send this to uh, friends, family members, and others who may be anxious about the election. Um, But this is a kind of an exciting opportunity for us to, uh, both reach a wider audience, but also just really be uh, immediate and try and address um, what happened on election night. Has anything happened on election night? Uh, and where do we all go from here? So these are um, some, you know, I'm nervous because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to say, uh, what to say. I don't think I could write a lecture for it because what's going to happen? Anyway, so yeah, be there for that. Um, you watch your professors have a nervous breakdown live on YouTube. It's what we've been promising you all semester long. Okay, so um, be looking out for information about that. Please feel free to share it around. So let's talk about what's going to happen or what we can expect, okay? All right. 
This is Nate Silver from 538.com, the great sports statistician turned pollster politician figure. Now, Nate, I think, does Nate does like CNN does treats uh, politics like sports. Who's up? Who's down? Who's winning? Who's losing? He's not much of a reporter as much as he is a sort of play by play man in the political world. But he's probably the most prominent statistician in the country and his uh, opinions matter. So this is the um, basically the the last uh, uh, projection from 538 on the verge of the election. So the article is, of course, titled, I'm here to remind you that Trump can still win. And indeed, I am here to remind you that Trump can still win. Uh, nothing is assured. And this is not just PTSD from 2016 talking. But what we do have here, Nate Silver offers Donald Trump a 10% chance of winning. Now, you know, just to make everyone nervous, I went and got my son's 10-sided die. Okay, this is from, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons game. It's 10-sided. So I roll it and there's a one. Okay, I roll it. There's a four. I roll it. There's a three. I roll it and there's a zero. Okay, Donald Trump just won the presidency. That's what we're up against. Okay, that's what's happening. All right, just... 10-sided die, just I rolled it five times and came up with a zero. Okay, so there it is. Now, remember that Hillary Clinton had a 28.6% chance of winning in 2012, in 2016. Now, this is not 2016. Things are decidedly and significantly different. Now, what is different? Now, not the least of which is that the polling data for this election has been remarkably stable. Joe Biden has maintained a significant lead over Donald Trump uh, for months, and there's no indication that that gap is narrowing in any meaningful way, much as it did in the late stages of the 2016 election, in which undecided voters and new voters broke very hard for Donald Trump. The other key element here is that the top story in the nation outside of the election, which is, of course, all consuming, is the coronavirus. And today is the worst day in the history of the coronavirus for the United States so far. And of course, we anticipate voting on what will be the single worst day of the coronavirus so far. So the dominant story in the outside world is one that is, in the end, very negative for Donald Trump. It's a bad story. There's no version in which he can change the narrative this close to the election and have, uh, have it really be a, a kind of meaningful correction. And it should be said, these are the sort of typical tracking polls uh, that we see across. And what you see here is Biden with what is projected to be an 8.6% national lead in uh, the polls. Now, again, keep in mind that Hillary Clinton was about, uh, in 538 um, was a two to 3% uh, lead in the national polls. And she did indeed win by 2% or 28 um, million votes. So what this is projecting is that Joe Biden could win by anywhere, depending on turnout, anywhere between eight to 12 million votes. He could win, he could win here. The question is, is will he become president? Uh, we, of course, don't conduct our elections on a national popular vein. We conduct them through the Electoral College. And so that becomes a, a separate issue. 
Biden's lead is remarkably stable, as I've said. Hillary's lead was never uh, never reached more than four or five percent uh, ahead of Donald Trump, and it narrowed considerably in the last stages of the election. And Hillary's national polling average has never reached more than fifty percent, whereas Joe Biden has been above fifty percent for several weeks or months now. Indeed. The popularity that, you know, the the Biden-Trump polling tracks pretty closely to Trump's own popularity um, and, and approval ratings. So you see below here, uh, Donald Trump's approval rating has never been above 50. His disapproval rating has always been above 50 percent. His approval rating has never been above 50 percent through the totality of his presidency. He is easily the most consistently unpopular president in American history. Now, you can see here that these, um, you know, polling averages and things like that um, do not predict the winner. They offer snapshots. Um, they offer a limited uh, sort of scientific approach with a large margin of error in which uh, the results still have to be determined. So as we play, say in the sports world, that's why you play the games, right? It's not just it's not just a stat a statisticians lining up players and running a simulation. Uh, you actually have to play the game, and so you can see here um, the national polling averages with three days to go across the you know the history of U.S. presidential races, um, and you know several of these things have um, you know have just clearly not turned out the way um, the, the polling averages have us, and we all know this from 2016, right? That uh, that all kinds of random things. Um, can happen that the polls cannot predict or cannot uh, clearly foresee. Now, part of this is to suggest then, is there an error in the polls? Now, polling always has an error, but you can't actually see them until the race is over, right? You never really know what direction the polls are skewed until the, the, the data actually comes in and you can measure the prediction based upon the actual results. And so what we had in 2016 was a margin of error polling return that did skew on uh, Trump's behalf, right? So Hillary was considered well ahead, but yet a narrow margin in a few select states produced the scenario in which Donald Trump could flip the race. Now, what we have here is a significant lead by Joe Biden we have a significant popularity by Joe Biden. He's um, widely liked. You know, uh, his most Americans tend to agree with his policy positions over Donald Trump, and most people tend to see Joe Bi in Joe Biden someone who uh, has a firmer grasp and a better position on the issues that most Americans care about, with the exception of the economy, broadly uh, uh, understood. Nevertheless, if we take the polling errors that we saw in 2016 and simply impute them on, you know, compute them onto the numbers we have now, you can see what 538 gives us in terms of um, predictions. So even if the polls were as wrong this year as they were in 2016, Biden will still win Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Maine. Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, uh, but he loses in North Carolina, Ohio. He will win in Pennsylvania and he will win in Wisconsin. That's more than enough for Joe Biden to become president. So for, Bi for Trump to overcome what is perceived as a kind of polling bias, he's going to need an astronomical number. And quite frankly, my belief is in a certain sense that Pollsters do what generals tend to do, which is they constantly seek to refight the last war rather than fight the one they're fighting. They're, they're going to try and win the last war, not the one that's on the ground. And so pollsters 
many of them have made changes to the way they they compute their 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 polls in which they wait for educational uh, attainment. So the big gap within white voters is college age white voters and non-college uh, graduate white voters. In 2016, they undercounted the non-college age voters, which was Trump's base. In this year, my inclination, my suggestion, and what we've seen from a number of polls is they're overestimating those people. The possibility of a significant polling error in Biden's favor seems quite strong, a real possibility. So in a certain sense, like I don't expect Trump to outperform his polling data. In fact, I expect Biden to outperform his polling data. Now that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm officially on the record here. I could be completely wrong. We will find out uh, soon enough. But one of the things that's particularly important, why this race is so stable, this is the uh, 270 to win um, uh, current sort of um, battleground state and um uh, polling data chart in terms of the Electoral College. And you can see here that if Biden wins all of the states that he is leading or leaning in in the polls, then he has more than enough votes uh, to become president of the United States, even without Florida uh, or North Carolina. Um, and the reason why I think the, the polling data remains so stable is a couple of reasons. One reason is that there are no third party candidates. There's no Jill Stein. There's no Gary Johnson who could poll three, four percent in certain states and enter a greater degree of instability into the polling data. Small candidates are hard to poll for, but they can have a significant um, impact on the outcome. There are no meaningful third party candidates this year. Secondly, there are far fewer undecided candidates this year, uh, voters than there really ever have before. I mean, as you know, the, the, the nation is deeply polarized. There's no meaningful, um, you know, swing voters or undecided voters. Those people, you know, are kind of not out there or they're certainly not out there at the numbers that they, are, they were in 2016. Part of that is because in 2016, a majority of American voters basically said, I don't like either of these people. I don't like Trump or Hillary. And indeed, we, we have to be honest about this, that Hillary Clinton was easily one of the most unpopular presidential candidates the Democrats have ever tried to run. She was widely disliked by, um, a, you know, a, frankly, a majority of the American people. Her favorability ratings never cracked 45 percent. Um, now, this is just whether or not you like. And yes, that is bound up in misogyny and a woman running for president and a 20 year or 30 year campaign of the right wing to attack the Clintons and everything they could have ever stood for and so on and so on and so on and so on. The fact remains that she was a deeply unpopular candidate in a year in which uh, there was no incumbent. Now, history tells us that when there is an incumbent president, undecided voters rarely break for the incumbent in the last week. So undecided voters rarely will go, yeah, you know, I'm going to vote for the, the sitting president in the last week. Most people, if you're going to vote for the incumbent president, have already decided that. So in this situation, historically speaking, the undecided voters out there are more than likely to break to the challenger than the incumbent. And then lastly, there is this enormous number of early votes that have been coming in. Um, and this really, I think, is the most dramatic story we have available in this election at this point. There are um, 94 million votes have already been uh, brought in. Uh, and this is a record number. It's We're well towards 70% of the total vote from 2016. Now, what does this mean? 
it means on the one hand is that Americans are quite enthusiastic, maybe not about Joe Biden, but are very enthusiastic about voting. They might not be enthusiastic about Donald Trump, but they're very enthusiastic about voting. So there's huge impetus to get out there and vote. It also means that people, you know, like myself and others, their ballots have been in for weeks now, months now. So there's nothing in the last day or two of a campaign that can change a ballot that's already been submitted. Right. So this also decreases the kind of uncertainty and instability in the moment. Now, this is, you know, and yes, thank you. But clearly the people of California heard my desperate plea. There are 11.2 million votes in California already, as opposed to merely 9.7 from Texas. So, you know, big up Texas. Congratulations. You're absolutely just slaughtered their polling, (laughs) their vote totals from 2016, like truly remarkable. I mean, I think in a certain sense, this may be the biggest story that we've seen in terms of just ballots and votes and things like that is Texas right now. But of course, there's 8.7 million votes in Florida. There's 3.9 million votes in Georgia. There's 4.5 million votes in North Carolina. Um, There's even 2.9 million votes in Ohio. And the early voting totals also make it difficult to predict. I think pollsters are having a difficult time trying to figure out what these early voting totals actually mean. So there's stability in the race. There's stability in the candidates. There's a certain measure of predictability, and there's a very large lead on a national polling uh, data for Joe Biden. Now, how do you go about winning? Um, Well, so let me just put it this way. 2016, right, 2020 is not 2016 for a whole host of reasons, many of which I've already talked about, Hillary Clinton, uh, not the least of which. One of the other kind of key components, let me pull uh, up a different map. One of the key components here, this is the 2016 map. Actually, I'm going to go back here. This is the 2016 map. You will all remember this with some degree of of post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, and what you see in this map is, yes, Trump broke um, the Democratic control of the upper Midwest. Uh, he ran the table on the Sun Belt, et cetera. And while the map looks very red, and it is, uh, he did win, 306 to 232. This is a very soft win for Donald Trump. He did not win by massive margins. He won by razor thin margins across a broad set of states. So Donald Trump won by 4% in Pennsylvania, 3.6% in North Carolina, 4% in Arizona, 0.23% in Michigan, 0.7% in Wisconsin. Now, similarly, Hillary Clinton only won Minnesota by 1.5%, won Nevada by 2.4%, and won New Hampshire by only 0.4%. So there were multiple very close races that could have tipped one way or the other, and we would all be telling a very different story right now. So Trump's win in 2016 was narrow, it was soft, and he has not been able to follow up effectively uh, in the past four years to solidify that. uh, that th- this map. We are not going to see this map again. So what to expect on election night? Okay. I highly suggest to all of you, you just go- to go to this, you know, and click around. It's a good time. Um, I'll put it in the chat there. This is the 270 to win. There's lots of click around, find your, you know, and, and pick, pick a set of a path to win. But here's my brief version of what to look for on election night. Okay. I'm going to give you three options. 
three options, okay? The first is a big Biden win. And what you wanna look for in terms of a big Biden win on election night is are these states, North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, and Texas. These are the, if Biden wins any of these states, he's in extraordinarily strong position. If Biden wins more than one of these states, he is in an almost unbeatable position. Now, these are the states. Now, these are the, and so I give you this version. This is a, this is a big Biden win that I have on this map here. This is 406. I, I don't anticipate he'll get to that, but this, is, this would be a huge Biden win. Now, we're spending all this time looking at Florida. We're looking at North Carolina. These are going to be the leading indicators. North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona count their ballots relatively quickly especially Arizona and North Carolina. They're going to be ready to count and ready to count quickly. Now, if Biden wins North Carolina, that's quite, I mean, that's 15 electoral votes. That's, and that shows a kind of where the polls track. He is leading in North Carolina by two to 4%, depending on who you ask. Um, So, but if he wins North Carolina, then the possibility of a Biden landslide gets stronger. If he can win in Florida, which he's dead even to two points ahead, that's a big, big deal. If he wins in Florida, then, then he's president of the United States, essentially. Now, other places to look would be new battleground states like Georgia, Ohio, and especially Texas. And let's just say this, if Joe Biden wins Texas, we are now in a new country. A completely new nation will emerge out of this. The map will have been rewritten. If Joe Biden wins Texas, everybody can go to bed. He's president of the United States, full stop. No amount of fuckery, chicanery, or SCOTUS interference could possibly make Joe Biden not win the presidency if he can win in Texas. Now, I'm not saying he will. He's dead even in most polls in Texas. And Texas, as we know, is not so much a red state as it is a voter suppression state or a non-voter state, but that's a big deal. So that's option number one, a big Biden victory. And that's what to look for. Those are the states. Okay, a narrow Biden victory, one that will be necessarily drawn out over several days, if not weeks, looks more like this. A narrow Biden win means that he must win in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, and Nevada. If he loses any of those states, he is in quite bad shape. Things look bad if he loses any of those states and does not pick up any of the battleground states in the top category. So if he's if if Trump wins Carolina, North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, and Texas, Biden can still win if he sweeps these states. The must wins. And this is the map I showed you here. It's a 279 to 258 win in which Biden wins, reclaims the blue wall, um, even loses Arizona. But if he wins the blue wall and retains the, 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 particularly Nevada and Minnesota, then he's president as well. Now, this will take a longer time. This is a much slower process, okay? But this, this is a narrow Biden win. Okay, Trump can win. How does Trump win? Trump's win to path to victory is much narrower. He's walking a tightrope, much like he did in 2016, but he's walking a tightrope. That's the 10% chance. Trump's must wins are all of the battleground states that Biden could pick off. So Trump must win in North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, and Texas. If he loses in any of those states, the chances of him winning go way down. Now, the way you would find an indicator 
of how we, we might come to recognize that Trump is going to win this is that if Trump is close or leading in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, or Nevada, if Trump wins any of those states and holds on to his must wins, then he'll be president of the United States. So you can see the narrow version here in which even Biden wins in the upper Midwest in Wisconsin and Michigan, but loses Pennsylvania, loses North Carolina, loses Georgia, loses Florida, loses Arizona. And that is a narrow Trump win. One of the places I would encourage you to look, it has been widely overlooked in discussions of this election so far, but pay attention to Minnesota. The Trump campaign believes that they can pick off Minnesota. Hillary won it in a very narrow way. Trump has been campaigning there. He's been spending considerable money in Minnesota. If Trump can win Minnesota, then not only is it going to be a long night, but it will be a very bad night for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Now, these are just some sort of things to look for. But the truth of the matter is that it all comes down to one state. There's always one state. Now, if you will recall, on the opening lecture, I suggested that it was going to be Wisconsin. I pointed to Wisconsin saying that's your your tipping point state. Well, this year, um, I was wrong. Uh, Wisconsin, Biden's got about a 10 to eight to 10 point lead in Wisconsin right now. And what is predicted to be the tipping point state is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is going to be the big state. This is the one that is most likely to determine the outcome. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, he's all but assured to be president. If Trump wins Pennsylvania, then he's on his way. Trump must win Pennsylvania if he's going to become president. And so what do you expect here? I mean, it is literally the Keystone State, right? Election returns here will be slow, and they are sure to face some legal and, in fact, probably aggressive uh, on-the-ground challenges. Pennsylvania will be the most contested state. Now, Pennsylvania has these big blue cities. You know, it's got Pittsburgh on, in the west and Philadelphia in the east. And it, it, its interior is filled with a large, rural, overwhelmingly Christian conservative heartland. It is a state that, to one degree or another, looks like the United States itself with crowded blue coasts and a deep red interior. And this is the state that will more than likely determine who is president. Now, as I've already showed you, Biden can become president if he loses Pennsylvania. Trump more or less cannot. He has to win Pennsylvania, which is why he's putting all of his eggs in one basket, you know, increasingly claiming that, you know, he's going to contest the results in Pennsylvania. He's already announced he intends to contest the results in Pennsylvania. So we will come to, we'll come back to that. Uh, hopefully, um, and we'll come back to that at another point in today's discussion, because I think that is the key issue. Pennsylvania will not be decided uh, tomorrow night. Uh, most of the ballots will not be counted by tomorrow night. Pennsylvania overwhelmingly um, is, is, will take time to count if they are allowed to count the votes. Uh, Trump is clear. He has announced it openly that he intends to contest the results and to halt the count in Pennsylvania after midnight on election night using terrible legal precedent and a non-existent historical example um, to suppress um, the vote in Pennsylvania and declare victory. That is his plan. He has stated it openly. So do not be surprised when Donald Trump goes hard on Pennsylvania. Okay. Last uh, set here, what to expect on election night. Be patient. I know that's hard. I don't feel patient right now. Do any of you? No, of course not. No one feels patient. I don't feel patient in the slightest. Be patient. 
chances are this is going to take a while, especially if Biden, if Biden blows Trump away, we'll know that anything short of a massive Biden blowout is going to take time. Okay. It's going to take time. So this could take even weeks to decide. The election results will solve none of our immediate problems. Whoever becomes president is not, you know, the the election is not going to solve the economic crisis. It's not going to make coronavirus go away. It's not going to make the police stop killing uh, unarmed uh, people of color. Uh, And it is uh, definitely not going to allow us to all of a sudden resume in-person classes. Uh, So the election, while important, will have almost no immediate results in terms of the crisis we're in. Uh, So get your sleep. Take care of yourself and each other. Secondly, expect confusion, rumor, and institutional stress on both social media and legacy media as they try to determine the winner under ever-mounting pressure. I expect Steve King on CNN to have a nervous breakdown on television tomorrow or the day after, right? As I plan to during our live stream on Wednesday morning. Um, Because not just because they don't know, they won't know the results, but there is going to be enormous pressure on them to make a decision, to make a call, uh, to do that, to get this right, especially under circumstances in which Donald Trump is going to say, I won, I'm president, I won. And Fox News says he won, he's president, this is over, stop counting. And CNN and MSNBC and the AP and, uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, NPR and everyone are saying, well, no, 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 no. We don't know the results. That stress is going to be very real. So be, be aware that a lot of this is going to play itself out in the media and the pressures that certain media outlets are going to be under is going to be enormous. If you wanted to watch your media apparatus crack in real time, this may be our opportunity. Fourth, uh, third, don't drink too much coffee or liquor. Uh, And take small bites out of the edibles and wait for them to take effect before eating more, okay? Um, Stay hydrated. This is going to take a long time, okay? Just stay hydrated. There you go. See, Saro's got it, okay? Lastly, do not gamble on the outcome of the elections, but do be ready for mass mobilizations uh, such as they are needed. Um, I will say this. Donald Trump has a 10% chance of winning, says Nate Silver. But then he writes at the bottom of this article, quote, a Trump win remains plausible. And note that with his 10% chance, our model is specifically referring to a legitimate win. We do not account for what we call extra constitutional shenanigans by Trump or anyone else, such as trying to prevent mail-in ballots from being counted. This is something that cannot be accounted for in polling, extra judicial, extra constitutional shenanigans. We've seen a lot of them over the weekend. I will try and talk about some of them on Wednesday, particularly anything that is more immediate. But I will say this just to simply look down the camera and put my sort of whatever on the line here and say, I can guarantee that Joe Biden will receive millions more votes than Donald Trump on Tuesday. And once they are all counted, Joe Biden will have defeated Donald Trump by five, six million votes. Whether or not he becomes president is a different story entirely. Whether or not he's able to win in the electoral college, whether or not this ends up in the Supreme Court, the packed Supreme Court that hands it to Donald Trump, we do not know. But we do know that Joe Biden will win millions of more votes than Donald Trump. But that may not be enough uh, for him to become president. And if we 
if this fails, if we find ourselves in such a steep constitutional crisis um, in which a minority president you know, lost by 10 million votes but still becomes president, then we are truly in uncharted territory. We are in a constitutional crisis. We are in a legitimacy crisis. Um, and the, the precipitous decline of the United States as a world power will unfold before our eyes in a matter of weeks time. So yeah, that's my, those are my two cents. That's my, that's my prediction. Um, I do have a poll that I would like us to take. There's a hundred, there's 183 of you. Like, so here we're going to, we're going to do this. There's a, this is my poll. Okay. There are three questions. All right. Launching poll. All right. So the first question, now this is a hundred percent anonymous. All right. A hundred and hundred percent anonymous. So there are three questions. Uh, the first one says, who will win the presidential election in 2020? Uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, the second question is, what will the results look like? Option one, big Biden win on election night. Option two, big Trump win on election night. Option three, narrow Biden win after a long fight. Option four, narrow Trump win in electoral college. Option five, Trump wins Trump v. Biden in Supreme Court. And the final option, revolution. Question three, have you voted yet? Yes, my ballot is in. No, I'm voting tomorrow. No, I can't vote in a U.S. election. And no, I'm not going to vote at all. Again, these are um, totally anonymous. And uh, we'll give you all another 15 seconds or so to decide uh, before I report on the results. That's right. Vote, baby, vote. Okay. All right. So we got all of our, you know, okay. So there's still some more coming in. Okay. Come on, everybody. Uh, let's see here. All right. So what do we got? I haven't received the poll. Huh, interesting. Somebody, uh, maybe the only one, there's a few of you who have not received the poll. So I don't, uh, I don't know what that is, but all right. Okay. So here we are, like we're 90 seconds in, cause that's all the time you have to you get to vote. Um, all right. So here's the results of our completely non-scientific poll of uh, of uh, election 20, big ideas, election 2020 students. Okay. So 16% of you think that Donald Trump and Mike Pence will win. 84% of you think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will win. Well, that, that seems to skew with the data I just presented you. Uh, what will the results look like? 13% say a big Biden win on election night. 0% say a big Trump win on election night. 87, excuse me, 54% of you say that a narrow Biden win um, after a long night. Um, uh, 7% of you say a narrow Trump win on Electoral College night. 12% or 20 of you say that Trump will win in the uh, um, in the Supreme Court. And 14% of you say revolution. Now, note that I did not suggest that that revolution would be either left or right. Uh, you know, the, the, some of you may have just voted in behalf of a fascist takeover of the United States uh, as a real possibility. <laughs> um, but go ahead. That's okay. That's, you know, that's, these are on the, it's on the table. Um, and then have you voted? Yes. Uh, so 78% of you, yes, my ballot is in. 12% of you, no, um, I'm voting tomorrow. 10% uh, of you, no, I can't vote in a U.S. election and one of you said, no, I'm not going to vote at all. Well, I think that that's fair because like this, this class is rather uh, pre-selected for people who care about electoral politics. So there's one of you who's not voting and like, you know, and uh, God love you. So um, there it is. That's uh, our uh, unofficial poll. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, let's see if Sorrow is ready. I am ready. Uh, for some reason, it will not let me share my deck, my PowerPoint, no matter how hard I try. So I'm just going to do it 
by sharing you stuff from the internet. Can you can you see? Okay. All right. Thank you, Professor Cohen. Um, I think that's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is um, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, what are the people going to do on Wednesday? Um, and uh, I, I shared with you in the past that there are multiple coalitions, many of them. I'm going to go through some of them that are planning mobilizations all over the country. At this point, more than 400 mobilizations have been planned um, on Wednesday at various times, depending on where you are. But I, I did want to spend some time first talking about how all of these groups, by the way, besides the coalitions planning mobilizations on Wednesday, there are also lots of labor unions talking about general strike. What do we, you know, how would we plan a general strike? And some some unions uh, like the, the nurses and the airline attendants are actually talking already about striking, depending on, um, can I stop sharing the poll results? Yes, right, can those leave? Can you see just the, the web? Okay, um, so before we talk about the actual actions on Wednesday, I wanted to share a little bit about how people on the left um, and, and not just Biden supporters, I wanna be very clear, these are people thinking about democracy and fighting fascism, um, are thinking about whether to mobilize, when to mobilize and how long to mobilize. And also what else we need to do in addition to mobilization to push back on the shenanigans that Professor Cohen mentioned. Um, so, uh, in order to do that, there have been quite a few different guides that the left has been putting out in terms of what exactly is going to happen. And this is one of them, the count. Uh, these three people, Zach Mallets, Zach Mallets and Becky Bond come out of Our Revolution and the Sanders campaign. Brandon Evans came out of Working Families Party. These are all kind of uh, working people's uh, kind of campaigners, people in the political sphere. They put together this guy that has become fairly well-read, widespread among people thinking about resistance. And they, one of the major things that they uplift in terms of shenanigans, we've seen a lot of different kinds of shenanigans, right? We know there are 40 different lawsuits right now across the country by Republicans to stop counting in various states. We know that on Saturday, Trump's campaign put out the message in one way or another that they were going to declare victory prior to the count getting to 270. Um, that if they said if they're close, they're gonna go ahead and declare victory. We know that there are thoughts about the Supreme Court. It's already being discussed. Can we repeat uh, Bush v. Gore from 2000? Um, there's a lot of different types of shenanigans, but these three, Zach, Brandon, and Becky, one of the major things they wanna uplift is the possibility of Republican legislatures, which are 26, 26 out of 50 states have Republican controlled legislatures. And the thing that they most are thinking about is the poss very real possibility that Republican controlled legislatures might send in a second set of electoral votes, even if the governor and the, the state you know, went by the popular vote uh, to Biden, that there might be a second set of electors who put forward uh, that this was fraudulent and therefore we need to put together a second uh, a second submission of the Electoral College. 
to Congress. And they lift up the case in 1876 when there was a major constitutional crisis. We've discussed some of this prior in this class, but not all of this. So this has happened once before. In 1876, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina sent in two sets of electoral college votes to Congress. Each one, uh, you know, one set pledged to the Republican, which was Hayes, who ended up becoming president, and the other to the Democrat, Samuel Tilden. And in the end, Congress made a compromise and said, we will go with Hayes as president, uh, but as long as troops are withdrawn from the South, which basically set the stage for Reconstruction and Jim Crow, along with a lot of other things. But this compromise in 1876 is something that these folks, Mallets, Evans, and Bond, are lifting as a real possibility, not the compromise, but the submission of two sets of electoral votes from multiple Republican-controlled states. So they lay out this, and I'm sorry, my PowerPoint isn't working, so I will just show you from the actual guide. They are laying out this um, timeline. And this timeline is something I have to say all of the coalitions are looking at. A lot of the coalitions have been talking about planning for resistance in three phases. Obviously there's get out the vote until tomorrow. And then from November 3rd to December, there's this period in which these shenanigans could happen, multiple shenanigans, one of which is two sets of electoral votes from multiple Republican legislature controlled states. And then the third period being from December 8th, the safe harbor deadline to inauguration. That's a third. So people are thinking about really two phases of resistance. And this is why I, th I think it's a little bit important to go through this because <laughs> resistance is not just Wednesday. Action, 400 actions are planned for Wednesday, but most of the people planning the actions, if we need to have actions, are not thinking that it ends on Wednesday. They are thinking that um, instead uh, that things have to keep going and this is the timeline that everybody is looking at. So really quickly to go through this timeline, election day is supposedly tomorrow, yes, um, as Professor Cohen just went through. <laughs> um, and then there is this period in which each state is supposed to submit their electoral college votes to Congress. And December 8th is called the safe harbor deadline because if they get it in by December 8th, they're safe. If they don't get it in by December 8th, there's a very real chance that their votes don't get counted. Their electoral college votes don't get counted. Um, and so November, that period in between is a really dangerous period. First, um, obviously, as we know, mail-in ballots, a lot of them are gonna come in after November 3rd. Um, and many more Democrats have requested mail-in ballots than Republicans. And uh, there's its key vulnerability that that process of counting mail-in ballots and then figuring out the electoral college votes being sent to Congress is very decentralized. It happens through lots of different county boards of elections. It's very, very decentralized and it creates lots of opportunities to delay and disrupt. But by December 8th, people are each state is supposed to submit their electoral college votes to Congress, and it is very possible that multiple states will submit competing electoral college votes. So in other words, uh, we just talked about Pennsylvania. The governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, is a Democrat. I know Tom, you know, <laughs> he and the Democrats, if, if, if Pennsylvania goes for Biden, they are quickly going to have an electoral college 
a gathering of Democratic electors who will submit their votes, but the Republican-controlled legislature in Pennsylvania could submit a, this is a real possibility, could submit a competing set of electoral college votes to Congress saying those, those, that electoral college submission is fraudulent, that that's not valid. So on December 14th is when the governors of each of these states have to report election results to Congress. So the safe harbor deadline is, by, is the point at which the electoral colleges each send in their votes from the states to Congress. The 14th is when the governors essentially certify. They submit this certif certificate of ascertainment saying that they certify um, which, which you know, set of electoral college votes they are proposing, they certify. But if there are two sets of electoral college votes, it's not actually up to the governor, it is up to Congress. And, um, and on that day, December 14th, if there are two sets of electors submitting, you know, the electoral college is supposed to meet in each state on that day. If there are two sets submitting from a state, then both electoral college groups will vote, will meet, sorry, will meet and uh, cast their votes and send a record of their votes to Congress. So uh, lots of lots of potential for chaos, confusion, and multiple electoral college votes being submitted between November 3rd and essentially December 14th. The new Congress comes in January 3rd. This is why it is not just the president. The Senate is so critical right now, so critical. Everything could change depending on whether there's a new Senate coming in on January 3rd. Because on January 6th, there's a joint session between the two houses of Congress to count the electoral college votes and choose the next president. And the three who, um, who wrote this uh, say, you know, people think of this as very ceremonial, typical. This is a ceremonial moment, typically. This is already decided. The networks have called usually the, the president. Um, most states have, you know, very clear it's gone one way or the other. But in a chaotic situation in which two st states have submitted two sets of electoral college votes, January 6th becomes not ceremonial, but a day in which Congress is really in many ways determining the, present, uh, the president. They say, let us be clear, there's nothing ceremonial about the power being exercised on this date. It is the result of this vote count and no other that determines who will be the next president. And then of course, there's inauguration on January 20th. If Congress hasn't finished counting electoral college votes or there's an ongoing dispute, um, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, will be sworn in as the acting president. So there is so much room between November 3rd and January 20th and potentially beyond, but hopefully not beyond, to really create a deep amount of chaos and confusion. And the real threat that these three authors of the guide say that it's important for people who are trying, you know, tr pushing for uh, Trump to leave to understand is that the opposition can not only make it hard for Democrats to vote, not only create violence at the polls, not only intimidate voters, um, but they especially can stop mail-in ballots from being fully counted. Uh, they can challenge ballots. They can delay the, the count past the December 8th safe harbor deadline. 
if the, the counts get delayed past the safe harbor deadline, you know, supposedly Congress cannot count that state's electoral college votes. In other words, they're just out. Um, so it's possible they could try to delay past the December 8th deadline. And then most importantly, they say they could get Republican legislatures to submit uh, fraudulent competing slates of Trump electors to overthrow um, the, you know, who gets set, submitted to Congress. So to fight this, um, you know, there's lots of things that people are thinking about need to be done, need to ensure that every ballot is accurately counted, need to ensure that um, the Democratic governors in these states are not wimpy, that they uh, submit Biden electors if Biden has won the state and that that electoral college has met, even if Republicans succeed in preventing all of the ballots from being counted and Trump has a partial partial lead based on a partial count or a lead based on a partial count, it's important for Democratic uh, uh, governors to stand up and be very strong and submit, uh, make sure that the appropriate, all the votes are counted. And then if Biden has won, that the Democratic electors get submitted to, to Congress. Um, and I just want to say, I think, even in saying that, and knowing a lot of these governors, um, it is very clear that the people cannot count on that process. It is very clear that the people cannot count on Democrats, Democratic governors, Democratic, even the Democratic candidates. It is very clear that the people cannot count on Democrats to ensure that there's a full, fair election. That the people cannot count on Democrats not to concede not to roll over, not to fight a fraudulent set of electors. And so what is most important is not, is not following this process and hoping that the Democrats stand up, um, but rather public perception of the integrity of the election, which as we've talked about multiple times in this class, public perception, public opinion can most effectively be moved quite often by social movement activity. And so um, there, is, there is a deep need to do, to do a lot of pushing of Congress to do the right thing, of, to, of pushing Republican legislatures to not submit fraudulent electors and to pushing Democratic governors to stand up for their states. But the biggest and most important thing that there's pretty universal agreement on is that we need to be out in the streets because winning the ballot count by preventing Democrats from being counted on on the right, that strategy on the right is a political tactic. It's not a legal strategy. And therefore public perception of who wins a state is going to matter more in a power struggle um, than who actually won that December 8th ballot count. So this is something they say that I, I just wanna read to you. If Trump loses a complete ballot count but the public believes that he lost because of fraud, he's achieved his goals. If on the other hand, Trump wins an illegitimate and incomplete ballot count, but the public knows that Trump cheated to take the lead, we still have a chance to stop him. Republican legislators will be far less likely to intervene in the election if a huge majority of Americans understand that Trump lost and is trying to steal the election. So in terms of what we can do about this, since I can't share my uh, PowerPoint, I'm going to now just share, hopefully you can see this, how workers can help defeat a Trump coup. Yes? Okay. So uh, 
Jeremy Brecher is from uh, Labor Network for Sustainability. There have been lots and lots and lots of different articles written about what workers can do, what people can do. Um, this one is based on two studies, the anti-coup by Gene Sharp and Bruce Jenkins. Gene Sharp is the most prolific writer or one of the best, most prolific writers on nonviolent uh, resistance theory, you know, nonviolent direct action theory and practice. He's written several guides on nonviolent direct action. Um, and then a second study he covers called Civil Resistance Against Coup by Stephen Zooms. And so um, the key lessons that emerge from these studies is that civil resistance movements after a coup, they studied about 15 resistance movements after a coup. They found that 13 out of the 15 were successful in overturning a coup. And in every single one that was successful, the most important element was a sustained, sustained mobilization, sustained resistance, not a one-time women's march, not a one day, we're all out on Wednesday the 4th and don't we all feel great, but sustained mobilization throughout the calendar that I just shared with you. And the, the biggest lessons from these other countries are that civil resistance movements that try to overthrow throw coups develop a bottom-up legitimacy in which um, the physical control of government facilities, which Trump may try to maintain, is not the same as political control of the state. Um, and one thing they found was that these resistance movements were incredibly dependent on the willingness of local governments, independent social institutions, and the general population to recognize their authority and cooperate with them. So while we cannot rely on Democrats to be very brave and courageous and push back against all the shenanigans, what we do need them to do is absolutely assert the authority, legitimacy, and morality of the people in the streets, demanding that there not be a fascist takeover or a coup. Because their willingness to say the kinds of things that unfortunately Biden and Kamala Harris have said in the last few weeks about protesters in Philadelphia or different parts of the country, like a one word, you know, nod to it's sad that people have to protest police violence, but immediately moving to, but nobody should be engaged in violent activity and, you know, looting is bad. And this kind of immediate knee jerk reaction of Democrats to if not undermine peaceful protesting, at the very least establish that they are uh, respectable and that they don't condone looting or violent activity, there has to be a full throttled endorsement and support of the people in the streets. And so we cannot rely on them to act on their own, but we do need them to, uh, to, to absolutely um, authorize, provide moral authority to the people in the streets. Uh, all successful cases of coup reversals included large public demonstrations and non-cooperation, which is the non-cooperation is the word for nonviolent civil resistance, nonviolent direct action. Um, and pro-democracy elements must mobilize quickly and engage in what may, what may be unplanned and largely spontaneous acts of resistance. So um, there are, are already, as I said, at least five different coalitions, including the labor movement, that it that are planning for a coup, uh, planning for a coup, <laughs> planning for resistance in the face of 
you know, totally illegitimate actions by Trump and the Republicans. And one thing that I wanted to point out in this article that um, I think a lot of people are thinking about in terms of guidelines for resistance, you know, we definitely need lots of people in the streets, but the frame has to be very clear. The people in the streets are not joke pro-Biden people. They're not Democratic Party people. They are people from multiple walks of life, multiple parties. They are people, they are children, they are seniors. They are not the far left. They are not militants. They are people of all generations, all parties, all stripes, not pushing for Biden, not out there protesting for the Democratic Party, but fighting for democracy and free and fair elections. And the unifying demand that I know that every coalition, there's lots of different sub demands that various groups have brought up, but the unifying demand right now of all the coalitions is to count every vote and to make sure that voting count, voting counts don't stop and that there aren't fraudulent electors submitted based on the stopping of vote counts. Nonviolence is essential to generate this kind of bottom-up legitimacy. There may be some violent activity, but nonviolence is essential to establish the legitimacy of the protesters. And at the same time, we know that violence is coming from the opposition. We know that there are uh, militants on the other side who are going to try to intimidate people, maybe even attempt to shoot people or engage in violent activity. And I think the last couple of lines of this particular paragraph, the, the last paragraph where it says, history shows that in most instances, the perpetrators of violence against peaceful people seeking to protect the public good, undermine their own support and increase support for those they attack. The best way to counter violence is to render it self-defeating for those who would use it. So you may recall from my lecture on social movements, the idea of push and counter push. If the people go out on Wednesday, fighting for democracy, not Joe Biden or the Democratic Party, but for democracy, and there is a violent pushback of any kind. Uh, it will be bad. We hope that we can support each other through that, but it can also backfire and grow the huge amount of support for people who are peacefully demanding that there not be a coup, that there not be shenanigans, that there not be a, a fascist takeover. Um, it will be essential to neutralize and win over security forces. Uh, we've seen from all these other coups from other countries that the military please, plays a key role. And again, people out in the streets, in the masses, in the millions will help. We have seen from previous other examples, win over the military. And lastly, end games. Lots of social movements and even shenanigans on the electors, like the one in 1876, have resulted in negotiations. And in this case, there can be negotiations. There can be negotiations for counting every vote uh, and not having fraudulent electors submitted to Congress. There can be no negotiation for delaying vote counts or delaying states past the safe harbor deadline. And so the three major coalitions that are kind of organizing right now, I mean, there are so many, but one is of course, protect the results, which I already talked to you about. Another is the Sunrise, many youth groups have come together under uh, We Count, I believe is the name of their coalition. Um, and then lots of local coalitions have come together. There's also, I mentioned to you, uh, kind of a people of color BIPOC gathering of folks called Defending Democracy that includes the Movement for Black Lives and Grassroots Global Justice and others. Um, but, there's, there's multiple coalitions that are kind of standing by 
waiting for Tuesday, waiting to see what happens, but planning on mobilizations on Wednesday. So I do just wanna share um, lastly, some really good guidelines that come from Bay Area Resistance, which is the Bay Area folks hosting, um, they are hosting the uh, events in the Bay Area on Wednesday. Um, so this is from Bay Resistance, which has been around uh, organizing, led by people of color organizations in the Bay Area and has really been organizing a lot of the major actions around immigrant labor and racial justice um, actions in, in the Bay Area. Uh, so they're looking, they're saying there are three scenarios, right? Um, election day results are unclear. Trump declares victory anyway, as his campaign said he would. Um, election results show significant irregularities and are signs of tampering and Trump declares victory or Trump loses the election but refuses to leave office. In all three of these scenarios, actions are planned for Wednesday. And as Professor Cohen said, the most likely scenario is some form of, we don't know, we just don't know. <laughs> there's no answer on Tuesday. There's clearly shenanigans. There's clearly attempts to stop the vote counts or to declare victory, for Trump to declare victory without all the votes to be counted. And so the demand is that all votes do be counted and that all election related irregularities are investigated and remedied and that nobody accepts the results until this happens because we do have a lot of experience of Democrats rolling over. Um, so they, they kind of outline many of the things I just talked about, need to have widespread mobilization, need to build alliances. Um, we need to have nonviolent action that invites broad participation. This cannot be just the activists. This has to be our children and our grandmothers and our aunts and uncles, people who are typically not involved have to come out to demand that uh, we not become a fascist, a fascist country or that there be free and fair elections, which is the hallmark of a supposed democracy, and that we refuse all of us collectively to re recognize illegitimate authority. And so people have been talking quite a bit about the fact that besides the people mobilizing, we need all of these pillars of power to, to declare the legitimacy and authority of people in the streets. We need all Democrats and Republicans up and down from local elected officials to state to federal, all declaring the legitimacy and authority and, and moral high ground of the people in the streets. As I shared with you, the studies of overthrowing coups from other countries show that that is so essential that the people not be seen as the radical, you know, kind of fringe folks, but that they be seen as masses of people and that every pillar of power is declaring their authority. So elected officials at all levels, business leaders. This is a weird moment in which people on the left are reaching out to CEOs to say, we need you to stand up and declare the legitimacy of the people in the streets. Media, judges who typically don't play any role or try to pretend like they don't play any role in social movements need to actually speak to local elected judges and local judges who are not elected and state judges need to declare the legitimacy of the people demanding that every vote be counted. We know we're very unlikely to get this, but police and military and then bureaucracies, government workers will be critical to speak up to say, we actually believe that the people in the streets are legitimate. So, um, Bay Area Resistance has been doing these trainings with wide sets of people 
from lots of different backgrounds saying we actually all need to be involved in some way. They went through the same phases that I just talked about and they are actually encouraging people to pay attention uh, and to stay calm um, and to uh, and to put you know out a very positive framework that with masses of ac mass action we can change this. Um, and one of the key things that a lot of organizing organizers are suggesting is that if you've never done any kind of direct action before, if you know people who've never done direct action before, the best thing to do is find two or three people who can be your affinity group and go out with you or encourage uh, encourage you and others to go out safely. If you're white and you have people of color, friends who are scared to go out for legitimate reasons being targeted, uh, you know, that people go out together. Um, so I'm not gonna go through all of this, but um, a lot of people, millions of people have already signed pledges to be out all over the country. On Wednesday, if you're in the Bay Area, the biggest one on the East Bay will be in Oscar Plaza at noon. It will go on into the night. Um, you'll hear one of our restaurant workers speaking there, one of our members. Um, and I just wanna say one last thing, which is I know people must, I know I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. I know everybody's feeling a lot of anxiety, which is why Professor Cohen is talking about edibles. We're all feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, a lot of this anxiety comes from being isolated. We are so isolated, so much more isolated than honestly we've ever been before. We've never experienced a moment like this or an election like this, but on top of that, we've never been so isolated in a moment like this. And so there is a euphoria, there is a sense of relief and release. I know from my own personal experience that comes from being out in the streets in safe, socially distanced ways with millions of other people across the country who agree, not that we need Joe Biden as president, not that we need the Democrats to take power, but agree that we live in a democracy and we have to actually maintain free and fair elections if we want to continue to pretend that this is a democracy. And so uh, that relief and re the release, uh, it turns into a euphoria when you feel that you are together with others who, and you're not crazy and that um, it's really them who are crazy. There is that moment that comes when we're out there together. And, the, and I just want to say my hope and prayer is that it's not just Wednesday. If we want to win, not just win to get Trump out of office if he's legitimately voted out, but also win all the key things we need to win with a Biden-Harris administration, the mobilizations have to keep going. They have to keep going at least through inauguration. I'll stop there. That was great. But thank you. That was really um, just magnificent. And yes, I, I do. I am making, I'm trying to keep it real over here in the East Bay, like make, make my jokes, but I think what, uh, and who doesn't love a good pot joke on occasion, but, um, but, but this is really what's most important, I think. Um, all right. So now we have a, a really great opportunity to hear um, from a couple of your GSIs. And uh, so I'm going to turn this over to, to Karen and Anna, and they're going to uh, give a presentation. And I will just say that um, I will, we will have probably a shortened period for discussion questions, but I will stick around. We can, we have this space until 1230. I know that Saru has to go. Um, she probably is meeting with a governor or a senator or somebody like <laughs> she always does when she leaves us. Um, but I will stick around and uh, answer any questions that um, I have the ability to answer after that. All right. So uh, Karen and Anna, um, I'll turn it over to you. 
Okay, hi, thank you, Professor Cohen. Um, I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, hi everyone. Today I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about my dissertation project and talk through the ways in which I've been thinking with the text that we've all been reading together in this class. I am a GSI after all, and shout out to my sections 101 and 104. I will end by relating my project to tomorrow's election day, also known as the last day to vote. And so to begin, my dissertation project is titled Languaging to be, understanding the ideological practices of the naturalization process. So what is the naturalization process exactly? <clears throat> the visual here depicts the steps and the requirements of the naturalization process. While discrete, the totality of these practices procures acquiescence to a new way of seeing and being through literacy practices that privilege a particular notion of citizenship. My project focuses on the circled steps in red to proficiently speak, write and read in English, to be a person of good moral character and pass an oral civics test in English as key moves in the development of the citizen. So some, not all permanent resident card holders participate in a naturaliz naturalization class that teaches English and helps students study for these sorts of exams. This is my research site. I'm interested in how pedagogically the curriculum of these classes treats language and teaches one how to become a good citizen. In other words, as a graduate student in the School of Education, I'm interested in the ways in which pedagogy can act to indoctrinate people into particular ideologies. And so by conceptualizing the literacy of neoliberalism and naturalization as deeply embedded with the founding logics of settler colonialism, we can interrogate the ideologies surrounding the naturalization process to learn how they infiltrate these ideations of civic literacy practices. My overarching research question concerns how the naturalization process has been used to socialize people into particular U.S. identities and values. So we all read Barbara Fields. Barbara Fields tells us that ideology is best understood as a descriptive vocabulary of day-to-day -day existence, where living without ideology is impossible. My work uses the site of this naturalization schools to think through the following ideologies, economic, language, and pedagogical. So looking to economic ideologies. Let's think back to what we've learned about neoliberalism in this class. So Harvey defines neoliberalism as a political economic doctrine of the 1970s and argues that social progress can be most effectively furthered by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong property rights, free markets and free trade. And so this goes back to that lecture where Professor Cohen mentioned that capital can go wherever it wants to go, but not people, especially with the fortification of borders. With globalization contributing to the complex patterns of movement across national boundaries, this creates new forms of identity, which destabilize the foundation of the nation state. The construct of the nation functions to otherize immigrants while simultaneously trying to integrate them into into the economy and assimilate into whiteness for a non-existent, elusive sense of belonging where immigrants are not really considered members of the state. And so concerning language ideologies, let's think back to what we read in Ami and Why Not Reading, where they talk about the historical survey of the racial formation process, where the emergence of a modern conception of race occurs, 
in part with the rise of Europe and the arrival of Europeans and the Americans. This period of supposed discovery and eventual conquest established a consolidated social structure of exploitation through the seizure of territory, organization of the African slave trade, and mass genocide. This colonial project established Europe Europeans as humans, as children of God, and everyone else as others to varying degrees of otherness. So one of the ways in which this racial project was advanced was through language. Colonizers used the term simple communicators to invoke a fiction that imagines the colonized as less than human communicatively. Some colonial agents saw no role for indigenous language in European colonial projects and believed it should be replaced with European languages. From this perspective, colonized people could only further their humanity by mastering a European language. However, as Fanon reminds us, even when colonized subjects comply with the imposition of European languages, they are continuously positioned as racial others who will never be fully European and by extension, fully human. And so here the value of English as a nation building project and for economic development cannot be understated. So lastly, the concerning pedagogical ideologies Let's look to naturalization schools situated within the Americanization movement and remind ourselves that education and think about education as the intellectual arm of the state molding a prototypical idealized citizen. And so nativist sentiments towards immigrants intensified after the First World War. And in 1918, legislation permitted the Federal Bureau of Naturalization to propagate citizenship classes that provided a common language and narrative of the history of the United States with school curricula and instruction acting to initiate the foreign born into being American, whatever that might mean. So this naturalization project was also embraced by employers and by the military. Motivated by the need for their employers to speak, employees to speak English, employers started to run Americanization classes in large plants like the Carnegie Corporation. And the war work extension also began a campaign to nationalize America after data on draftees found that millions of draftees could not sign their names or write in English. So these deficiencies were considered threats to American productivity and military preparedness. And here I'm thinking of, I'm interested in thinking about how pedagogy acts as an indoctrination process where historically reformers understand schooling as a tool used to maintain social order. So through some of these citizenship classes, though some of these citizenship classes do incredible work in terms of teaching civic literacy and the likes, the exams as set by the state force a top-down pedagogical engagement. And so here we're seeing a, a GIF or a GIF, whatever you call it, of the naturalization exam, ask and answer, right? It's not really asking us to think critically or, or, or to question our civic participation. And so, Ursiole discusses the framing of the good ethnic citizen, one that epitomizes hard work and the will to better oneself and the desire to make it as an American. Only within this frame, an ethnic citizen can safely be non-white, but without this frame, the safety disappears. Here, the role of, the, the role of language in the nation building process is critical by which language is idealized and embedded within national identity. And this is fueled by the conceptualization of what a good citizen looks like, one that speaks English and contributes to the economy. So through and through, each of these ideologies position the learning of English as the gold standard for academic advancement, 
and the prerequisite to be a productive citizen. And so let's go back to this chart. Um, so in relating it to tomorrow's election, I'm gonna focus on this last part, taking an oath of allegiance to the United States. This is the very last step in a very long and difficult process that's imbued with a multitude of ideologies. And it takes place through a naturalization ceremony. So let's look at some of the history behind that. So to do this, I'm referring to Letty Volk, an indigenous as alien. Volk historicizes naturalization ceremonies in 1916 when the United States started conducting these ceremonies for Indians becoming citizens through the Dawes Act. So here I use the term Indian when describing indigenous people as an object of legal imagination by the United States. So in these ceremonies, a competency commission decided whether Indians would be granted US citizenship. This commission began conducting citizenship ceremonies where an Indian men, Indian men were handed a bow and arrow and told to shoot their final arrow to mark the end of their resistance to the United States and then place their hands upon a plow to symbolize a new relationship to agriculture. And so one scholar, Somerville, has found archival evidence that is suggestive of a link between these Dawes Act ceremonies and the first naturalization ceremony staged for immigrants. It is possible that this performance of naturalization for Indians inspired naturalization ceremonies for immigrants, whose naturalization is the, at the time was conducted as an individual bureaucratic procedure without these theatrics or this symbolism. But as we're gonna see in the next few slides, that has greatly changed. So naturalization ceremonies today. To prospective citizens, these ceremonies are not all one monolithic experience. To some, not all, this is marked as a big accomplishment. Years of waiting to gain permanent residency status and the years that ensue for the long tumultuous process a process where some learn English and a process where they can finally feel a sense of safety. These halls are filled with families celebrating the moment. So the, the amphitheaters are huge. My mom was naturalized last year before COVID and it was really special. So you have um, here these big screens and I'm gonna show you what they play on those big screens next between this big flag. So Letty Volk quotes, and I quote, explains the following. The naturalization ceremony itself functions as a ritualized public performance of consent, a feel-good advertisement for the possibility of a multiracial democracy. And so for these ceremonies, um, there is a judge and they give a speech and new citizens recite the oath and some consent genuinely and others consent performatively. So let's see the videos. Um, so this is what they play um, one after another. They're all playing at the same time. And um, so, like I said, some of the prospective new citizens listen intently. Um, some converse with their families or with people they're sitting next to. And so there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, the imagery, the message, the welcoming into whiteness. And remember, we've talked about the possibility and impossibility of belonging. And so COVID happens. The ceremony I don't know, it's, it's nice. Some people like to go, um, it has all this symbolism that seems very important. Um, but surely, you know, lots of things were canceled and surely these ceremonies could move to Zoom as well or they could just, you know, end. Citizens already signed an oath in paper. 
And surely something would be done so that those who want to vote and have done everything possible to finally become new citizens can vote in this unprecedented election. But that, of course, doesn't happen. And so here is what did happen. Um, March 18th, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services offices closed their offices due to COVID. And naturalization ceremonies were canceled and they were postponed to a date in the future. Um, this contributed to a huge backlog in naturalization applications and to those waiting to take the citizenship oath that for some reason is incredibly important and can't be canceled. <clears throat> the delayed naturalization ceremonies reduced the number of new citizens who would be able to access the voting booth. And we'll talk about that in the next slide. And there was countless lawsuits. Um, there was bipartisan support uh, to try to move these online or to just kind of waive them for now in these extenuating circumstances. Um, but that didn't happen. And so some critics view this as, as evidence that the Trump administration was trying to discourage um, a new sort of voting bloc. And yet we see Trump participate in a nationalization ceremony and air the footage during the Republican National Convention without con 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 asking for consent for the participants. And we're just seeing this kind of duality of, of what's going on here. I mean, they were canceled and then kind of public, publicly broadcasting them and using people in these ceremonies for political gain. And so eventually, um, what did I say? June 4th, uh, they resumed. They resumed in person with masks, socially distanced. And in other parts of the country, in California, for example, there was drive-in uh, ceremonies. And at both of these instances, people received links to see the videos that I showed you, or they had to listen to them via radio in their car, um, just showing just how important this sort of symbolism is. And so what does this mean uh, for tomorrow or for the election? So in this first graph, um, I'm showing the number of petitions filed for naturalization. And we can see that this number increases during an election year. And with Trump's ascension to the presidency, the amalgamation of his xenophobic policies and the new grade level dog whistling, the last picture shown in the picture below that one, created an environment of insecurity and fear for numerous immigrants, unlike you know, years past. And so in this state of consternation, many permanent resident holders sense the residency status threatened and tried to increase. And so the applications increased by 25%, that's 200,000 more petitions than in the previous year. And so here to the right, um, here's some data from a nonprofit, Boundless Immigration, calculated an, an approximation of how many prospective citizens would be left out of the election, depending on when naturalization ceremonies would resume. And so if they resumed in June, that's about 189,000 people who didn't get to just complete that final in-person oath. And of course that varies depending on state and depending on the deadline to register to vote. And so, you know, this doesn't mean that the higher number of new citizen voters would necessarily swing the election. Um, immigrants are a voting bloc that is vastly diverse with different beliefs and political preferences. But this does show us, you know, democracy and what we're seeing here and how that's wrapped up with all these themes that we've been talking about. And this goes much further and much beyond 
than tomorrow's election. I mean, lots of people are stuck at any level of that graph that I showed twice, whether that be uh, getting fingerprinted to prove that they haven't committed any crimes or whether that be doing the interview process or answering the exam questions. I mean, people are stuck in this process kind of, and the backlog continues to grow. And so to end, um, for democracy, you know, we read Wendy Brown in this class and uh, she discusses how neoliberalism has become a governing rationality that converts political elements of democracy into economic ones. And in the ruins of neoliberalism, the book we read, you know, nothing is untouched by this neoliberal mode of reason and neoliberalism's attack on democracy has everywhere infected law, political culture and political subjectivity. And with the White House proclamation of a national day of remembrance for Americans killed by illegal aliens just yesterday, Ian Hanny Lopez reminds us how this administration has evolved the dog whistle and the extent to which Trump capitalizes on racial rage. And Wendy Brown reminds us how neoliberal formulations of freedom legitimizes the hard right and how the right mobilizes a discourse of freedom for its violent exclusions and assaults. So that's it. Uh, thank you. Uh, do we want to go to Anna's presentation? Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Uh, Anna, go ahead. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Karen. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well and taking some time to breathe and checking in with each other, given that tomorrow, you know, is the last day uh, for us to vote. And we will see what happens after that. But so Again, thank you, Karen. And today I will be talking about Arizona and the Latinx power in Arizona. And this presentation will be given through the context of my personal lived experience in the state. And given that I've done some political activism work in the state as well. So to start us off, I wanted to go over a brief timeline of the state and the political history in the state. And I wanted to go back to 2010 and in 2010, the Arizona State Legislature passed Senate Bill 1070, signed by former Republican Governor Jan Brewer, who is pictured here, the first picture on the left. And this bill was also led by the infamous Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And what this bill did is that it required the police to verify the immigration status of any detained or arrested person they suspected of being in the state illegally. Keyword here is suspected. Hence, um, local police officers were given the authority to ask community members of their immigration status. And so community members knew of the dangers that this bill would have on BICOC members, specifically Latinx members in the community. And they knew that this bill would lead to harassment and racial discrimination and further targeting, targeting of Latinx communities by the state. And also what as essentially SB 1070 did was that it created an open path for other states to follow anti-immigrant policies. And in 2017, Texas, the Texas state legislature introduced SB 4, which was a similar racial profiling bill in the state of Arizona, I mean, in the state of Texas. And so we moved to 2016. In 2016, Trump wins Arizona by 3.5%. And also in 2016, however, Sheriff Dora Pio was voted out of office uh, through the Adios Arpaio campaign movement. And uh, Sheriff Dora Pio was actually in office for over 24 years for Maricopa County, so very long time. And then we moved to 2018. In 2018, Arizona won a Democratic Senate seat uh, with Kristen Sinema. And then also in 2018, leading to 2019, 
many uh, local leaders won key offices, including um, Tucson Mayor um, Tucson Mayor Regina Romero, who is the first Latina Tucson Mayor elected into office. And so, what does that mean for 2020? Uh, so, currently in 2020, we next slide, please. Thank you. So. Currently, Arizona is Republican-led. Arizona has a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. Both the House and Senate are Republican-led. However, this year, tomorrow, Election Day, all 60 seats and all 30 seats in the Senate are up for re-election. And so this gives Arizona a potential to flip the state, uh, to flip the House and Senate blue. Additionally, Arizona is a presidential battleground state, as Professor Cohen went into detail this morning, and we also have another competitive U.S. Senate race uh, with Mark Kelly and Martha McSally. And to give you all a little bit of background on the numbers of Arizona, Arizona's population is a little over 7 million, and the breakdown of that is the state is 31.7% Latinx, 54.1% white non-Hispanic, 5.3 Native American, 5.2 African American, and 3.7 Asian. And in the state, there are, the state is 31.7% Latinx, which is equivalent to 2.2 million uh, Latinx in the state. And Arizona has 15 counties. The top, top two most populous counties include Maricopa County and Pima County. Uh, Maricopa includes the Phoenix Valley, and then Pima County includes Tucson. And here on the right, you'll see the breakdown of the Latinx population within each county. And so in regards to voter mo mobilization and what's happening in the state currently, um, One Arizona is a leading coalition on the ground. And One Arizona was formed in 2010 as a direct response to growing disenfranchisement of voters and the attack of the Latinx community after SB 1070 passed. And I do want to note how that SB 1070 was very detrimental to the Arizona economy. And back in 2010, the state was in the middle of an economic boycott where $140 million of revenue was lost in canceled concerts, canceled conferences, and overall lower tourism in the state. And so as we can see, going back to SB 1070, this caused fear and division in Arizona. Um, but out of this fear and division also rose political action and the creation of One Arizona. And Arizona was run by local leaders who have run for office and now hold political offices in the state. And One Arizona was started was a campaign started by four immigrant right organizations uh, with the goal of registering new Latinx voters. And since then, One Arizona has grown to include more than 20 organizations representing diverse communities across the state working side by side to build a culture of civic engagement and democratic participation. In 2018 alone, One Arizona registered 190,000 new voters in the state. And between 2010 and today, the coalition has registered nearly 500,000 new voters in Arizona, thus laying the groundwork for change in the state of Arizona. And one thing to note is, I'm not sure if you all were following the news, but we all know how COVID-19 has affected our communities, uh, specifically in voter registration as well. And so in Arizona, two local organizations, Mi Familia Vota and Arizona Coalition for Change, filed a lawsuit arguing that COVID-19 
had impeded on the efforts of registering new voters and that the state's online registration system did not help Arizonans uh, to register to vote those who did not have internet or did not have certain forms of identification. And so a lower court judge extended the deadline from October 5th to October 23rd. However, state officials and Republicans asked to appeal and the court stopped the extension, arguing that the sudden change created administrative problems for election officials. And so the deadline was pushed back to October 15th. Uh, however, this 10-day extension did allow for um, an estimated 35,000 new voters to register in that 10-day extension. And this is just some of the data of the people who registered for um, the parties from that 10-day extension period. And so what's going on on the ground? So voter mobilization and get out the vote efforts. These are some numbers that a local organization, Mi Familia Vota, has done during GOTV. And so their GOTV campaign started September 1st. And since September 1st, uh, the organization has registered 14,000 new voters. They have knocked on 213,000 doors and they have phone banked to over 27,000 phone calls. And these are updated numbers as of this Saturday. And some numbers on early ballots. So as you can see here, the ballots requested um, in the state and over here on the red, on the right hand, hand side, you can see the, the percentage of ballots returned per party line. Um, it's very close and Arizona ballots have already been starting to be processed. Secretary of State's office began processing ballots on October 20th, checking for voter um, signatures and ensuring that all of the ballots were correctly delivered and identified. Um, random fun fact, Arizona is a closed primary state, meaning that voters must be registered as uh, an affiliated party member in order to participate in the party's primary. And I wanted to share this map from 2016, going back to that 3.5 percentage uh, point difference with Donald Trump leading the state. Uh, interesting numbers. Here on the right, you see Maricopa County, which is the largest, the most populous county. Um, the difference, about 40,000 votes, uh, was in Maricopa County given to Trump. And so, uh, you can see how these numbers can change and potentially lead to a different outcome come tomorrow and come the following month. And so 2020, what will that look like? Uh, I'm not sure. We'll see. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, Arizona as a battleground state for the presidential candidacy. And so as Professor Cohen mentioned in the, in the beginning of the lecture, there's a lot to look into for the state. And this is the state that I will be watching uh, given come tomorrow and the coming weeks and months too. And so I just wanted to leave you all with some resources that I found very helpful. These are some podcasts and some um, different news outlets that talk about Arizona. And also if you're on social media, these are some of the organizations that I follow and will be following tomorrow. I believe Lucha is going to do a live stream of the election as the results come in for tomorrow. And so that is all I have for you all today. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much to the both of you. Like that was really informative and very helpful, really important stuff. Thank you both. That was, uh, that was really quite, don't we have the most brilliant graduate students uh, out there to teach you all <laughs> to, uh, to run your sections and to help us build this class without their work. Uh, we cannot do ours. So thank you both very much. That was enormously uh, insightful. Um, what questions do you have for either Karen or Anna? Or for Sorrow and I, but let's start with the two of them. I mean, maybe I can start just by saying like, uh, you know, th there's a lot of conversation now about Trump making inroads into the Hispanic vote. Um, and, uh, and I wonder how much of that is just about Florida or how much evidence do either of you see, um, particularly in Arizona or across the sort of, uh, immigration spectrum of Trump making inroads into that demographic? Yeah. Anna, can you give us some insight into that? Can you hear me? I'm sorry. Can you repeat your question, Professor? Yeah. So just Trump is really touting the inroads he's making into the Hispanic vote and that he uses that term. And they're talking about the Hispanic vote. And I'm wondering how much of that is just about Florida. What kind of evidence do you see of that in Arizona? And then just Karen, um, you know, what kind of inroads is Trump actually making into immigrant voting populations? Yeah, so one of the podcasts that I just shared, the daily podcast, The Divided Latino Vote in Arizona, um, gives a lot of really good insight and interviews and talks to different voters in the state, uh, Latino for Trump voters, and it just gives a really good insight as to, you know, the, the divided Latino vote. And as Karen mentioned at the end of her presentation also, the Latino population is so diverse in regards to size, in regards to age that um, it really it really is diverse. And so I can speak to this weekend, actually, I was canvassing and getting out the vote in South Phoenix. And uh, we were met with uh, Latino for Trump voters. And it was interesting to, to hear them speak about their views and for us um, to talk about opposite views and to really share our stories as to how important this election is come tomorrow. And so um, I'm looking forward to see what happens in the state and continuing to support the on the ground movement that local organizations are doing in Arizona. Um, can you t tell us more about that encounter? Like what is the Latinos for Trump? What is their argument? What's their pitch? Um, uh, a lot of them are, you know, um, talking about their businesses. A lot of them, that a lot of Latino for Trump supporters that we spoke to this weekend have small businesses in the state and have really valued Trump's policies regarding businesses. And uh, it was very much of that economic um, immigrant, uh, quote unquote, American dream rhetoric that we heard from the voters this weekend. Um, and I think one of our guest speakers spoke about that as well in previous lectures. And so, um, yeah, it, it was it was very interesting to to hear that perspective. Okay, terrific. Thank you for that. I mean, it, it is interesting the ways in which the the small shopkeeper, the the what we would have referred to as the petty bourgeois, 
right, who see uh, the monopoly capitalists above them as a threat. They see the rising masses below them as a threat, and they hold all the more fiercely to their neoliberal faith in uh, progress. And it's the, the classic version of European fascism was that the voters that supported Mussolini and Hitler and others were the petty bourgeois, the people in exactly those positions. Now, I am not calling these people um, fascists, but there is this really intense kind of um, concentration amongst the sort of small shopkeeper, store owner, um, maybe restaurant owner, sorry, who can maybe offer insight into that, who end up being extremely right wing, um, well, you know, well beyond, um, you know, this kind of ideological surplus beyond what um, you might find of someone in a kind of struggling, ostensibly middle class social position. Yeah, fascinating. All right. So what questions do any of you have for for any or all of us? How how are we? How are folks? This is a sort of last opportunity to get your thoughts and ideas across about what you think is going to happen. Does anyone want to share with us um, their ideas or beliefs about what what we're going to see in the next couple of days? Or are you all just traumatized? (laughs) Or, Or just ready to be just waiting to be? Um, uh, Nicholas asks, what do we make of these massive Trump rallies? Sarah, do you want to, what what are your thoughts on these massive Trump rallies? Uh, Yeah, listen, uh, Trump was voted in, in, in 2016 by a little over 40% of the population. His approval rating has never dipped below about that, about 40%, a little bit higher. So uh, there are people who support Trump and they, in a typical election year, we'd see masses of people out at Biden rallies. Biden and Kamala Harris have chosen not to do that because of COVID, because of social distancing. So the massive Trump rallies are not atypical of what you might see. I mean, these are, you know, not even a fraction of the 40% that still believes President Trump has done an okay job or so around that. Um, so it's not that unusual. It's not, it's, it doesn't mean that he's going to win. It does mean that they have not actually cared about COVID or social distancing. And, uh, there was a recent report this weekend that the the rallies, researchers estimate that the rallies have resulted in about 30,000 COVID cases and 700 deaths, um, is what I read. So that, so it is not, it is not, uh, it's not unusual. It's not something to be worried about. It's what happens in a normal election year. It's just that this year, one side chooses not to kill people by having massive rallies and one side doesn't really care. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. That report that you you cited came out of Stanford University just the other day, 700 um, deaths, right? An 82% increase in coronavirus cases in counties after Trump holds rallies. And this is 18 separate rallies that this is based on. And I I would just simply say like that these Trump rallies are um, monuments to Trump's personal ego. They are what he wants. This is the only thing he likes in the job. Um, And it is probably the most pristine example I could think of, of Jonathan Metzl's argument around dying of whiteness. These are people who are willing to die uh, for their whiteness. Um, Let's, uh, let's, as a a new question uh, from Samantha Klein, please go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. 
I was just wondering, when do you guys realistically think that we will actually know who our next president is? Okay, so like I, I've sort of already been on the. I, I think there, there's, there's. I, I give it almost a fifty-fifty chance. I think there's a fifty percent chance we'll actually know on election night if Biden overperforms and blows Trump out. Does that mean again? He could be called by CNN. He's going to be the president of the United States. And all the things that Sorrow just said, we're going to have to fight for. So the real answer is, I think there's a really good chance it will be on election night. And I think the only certifiable chance is January 20th. Whoever shows yeah, up. To- I, I, I think the, the answer is in how you word the question. Yeah. If you want to ask, when will we know who most people voted for or who the electoral college should vote for based on who most people voted for in most states, then yes, we have a 50% chance of knowing tomorrow. But if you want to ask the question, who will be the next president of the United States? I would agree. We're looking at maybe up to inauguration day because of the massive amounts of potential for, for fraud and uh, illegal activity between as the dates that I showed between November 3rd and January 20th. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Rolling my dice here, you know, just to keep myself entertained. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fair, I think that Star is exactly right. And a lot of these polling questions, they're actually, the answers are in the question, right? And the, the, the shape of the question is is going to overdetermine what the answer is. But I, I think that that's, that's exactly right. Um, Cher? Um, yeah, so I was just wondering, um, because I got down a really, like, scary rabbit hole the other day, uh, and I saw or I was researching um, armyfortrump.com, like his actual enlisting website for his poll watchers and for everything and how he's like shaped all of that. And um, yeah, I guess my question is like, if we all mobilize on Wednesday, like in the event of a big Biden blowout, if we all mobilize on Wednesday, um, like what is the likelihood or is it possible for him to literally call on his army and to, to not just not concede, but to like really try and mess every possible, I don't know, like safety, like all of that up uh, just because he loses. Yeah. I, I, you want to go first, professor? No, go ahead. I I think it's not just possible, it's likely that there will be people coming out from these militias, these self-created militias to intimidate people, definitely on election day, likely the following day. But there's several things I want to say about that. One is um, there are lots of ways to protect each other from that, you know, lots and lots of ways to protect each other from that kind of activity. I was, I mentioned some of them going in groups uh, there, there are lots of ways in which the organizers of these rallies have prepared for that kind of violence. We've been having daily briefings on safety and security, and they have actually been working with police on these rallies across the country. Um, and, you know, some police, you can't trust all police, but some police have been very clear about how they're going to set things up to make sure things are careful. I, I guess I, I keep remembering the part of the movie, The Birth of a Nation, that Professor Cohen showed all of us, where um, I don't know if you remember the scene that Professor Cohen, sh- I don't know if you can show it again, Professor Cohen, before we before we close out, but um, that scene where the Ku Klux Klan, you know, pe- Black people come out to vote, and the Black, the, the Ku Klux Klan comes out with their guns, 
And then the black people run away, you know, because they don't want to get shot. And the, the words are, looks like they've learned their lesson. They're not going to come out again or something along those lines. Um, you know, I think that we have two choices as a people, even as people, as BIPOC people who will be more targeted by white militia than, than, than white people. We have two choices. We can stay inside, lock our doors, be very afraid of what the militias might do, frankly, not just in protest, but generally to wreak havoc and chaos and intimidation. Or we can figure out ways to be out together, to uh, stand together, to push back and to be safe in doing it. Um, and I, you know, at the end of the article that I shared, um, the guy from Labor for, Solid, uh, for Sustainability um, quotes Frederick Douglass, who said, there's no disguising the fact that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And if we maintain our highest state in this Republic, we must be something more than driftwood in a stream, which is, to say that everybody is afraid, I'm afraid, I'm bringing out my eight and 10 year old daughters to the rally in Franco Gala Plaza on Wednesday at 12 o'clock. But I feel like it's important for my family to be out there along with many, I know many other parents who are bringing children, I know elders who are going out. Um, so it is very, my answer to you is it's very possible, very likely that they are gearing up what they'll be able to do and their ability to sustain their insanity and violence will totally depend on the people coming out and pushing back on them and just demonstrating through their peaceful protesting that they are illegitimate and it will grow the numbers of people, as I, as I said. But go ahead, Professor. No, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you for that. Um, I did have a whole thing about Birth of a Nation prepped for today, but I'm going to wait. Uh, I'm going to keep that for Wednesday <laughs> um, because I think you all saw the the clip of the the you know the the truck rallies uh, attacking the Biden Harris bus in Texas, those kinds of things. Um, I, I will absolutely bring that back to the surface on Wednesday because I think it'll still be relevant. But let me say a couple, two things really ba briefly. One is, and I'm seeing this in the chat, like be careful about spreading rumors about violence and threats. Be very careful about that, okay? Um, if Unless we know that the Proud Boys are gonna show up, it is not helpful to be spreading stories about things like that. Now, I think, by and large, the Bay Area is gonna be relatively safe. I think that, by and large, the white nationalists that have been attacked, spent 2017 and 2018 attacking Berkeley have reoriented themselves around Portland and Seattle, and they have their reasons for doing so. This is, um, they believe that Oregon in particular is the Heimat, is the Nazi language for the homeland, and that they've been focusing on that, and that Portland is the largest major American city with the highest percentage of white people, and so white nationalists have been for focusing on Portland, thinking that they should be able to take that place over. They've sort of left Berkeley behind. Um, the, the Proud Boys did try and show up in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and several of them lost teeth. So I don't see them wanting to come back here anytime soon. The other thing I would say is that there is often a very explicit tonal shift in the nature of protests, particularly in the Bay Area, between daytime and nighttime. So if you are, have no particular experience in direct action, in social justice um, act, act, you know, activism, come during the day, I, 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 I am quite confident will be entirely safe, right? There will, and, and I have seen this, Saro's seen this, 
um, that when there are children present, when there are elders present, when there are disabled folks in phalanxes of uh, mechanical, um, you know, uh, electric wheelchairs and the like, um, people are calm. They they show their care and concern and um, and protect and defend one another. Uh, and and the tone is is very family oriented, very positive, very hopeful. When those people leave, when the children leave, um, when the elders leave and it gets to be nighttime, then the tone can shift. And that's where you need someone. And that's also when the cops come out, usually. And so that's when you need someone to watch your back, when you need to think, well, do I really want to be here at all? That's when the the possibility of violence definitely goes up. So I would say to go to Frank Agawa, um, Oscar Grant Plaza at noon, um, is a completely safe, worthwhile uh, act. I think that you can rest assured that you will be protected by uh, your fellow citizens. Um, at night, things change, and you will still have to be protected by your lo- your your, uh, your your neighbors and your um, affinity group. But you know, if you have any concern at all, then just come out during the day and leave at night. Also, the guide that I mentioned, The Count, uh, which is, I put the, the link to it. If you really don't feel safe coming out, if you have, you know, health issues and don't want to be exposed, there's many other things we need help with. We need, most of all, for, as we said, everybody to be calling on every single elected official in the United States of America, you know, local to state to federal, and every judge and every CEO to be declaring the moral authority of the people protesting who are not Biden people, they are democracy people, and to be declaring the illegitimacy of uh, fraudulent elections. So I I think if you can't go out, please make calls to anybody and everybody you can. And that count has, the count has a really nice, like call this person, call this person, call this person, call that person. All right, that's super helpful. All right, just to wrap things up here, okay. Uh, Tomorrow is election day. Um, Everybody go out and vote, and then we will see you in the streets on Wednesday, okay? Now, the other thing for for those of you who don't have bullhorns, um, there are no sections tomorrow, and there is no discussion topic required for you to submit this week, right? So, like, there's no... No set dissections, no discussion papers or submissions that are required this week. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And, uh, and, and we will see you defending democracy in the streets. All right. Good luck, everybody. Peace out.